Well, good morning, Bentonville Church. It's great to be together this morning. We wanted to let you know before we begin our sermon that this will be the last recorded YouTube service, at least for the next couple of months. And uh, there's a reason why. It's because for the last few weeks, we've been streaming again on Facebook Live, both our 815 and our 1030. And then as of last week, we found a way to be able to also stream live to YouTube. And so that will give us a chance to be able to assemble together in, in person, even if you're sitting at home with maybe your spouse or your family or your friends, or, or assembling as a small group and watching it later. It gives us a chance to be able to participate and worship together in a way uh, that, that becomes more dynamic than just what we've been recording here. So we're excited to see what happens with that. We want to let you know that um, there will be a link to make it easier for us to find. There will be a link on our, on our webpage. If you go to uh, the worship column, there will be a way to link directly to each week's worship, and you should be able to find it via either Facebook Live or YouTube Live, whichever one that you might prefer. But we're excited to see how God continues to use uh, new technology to help us to be able to worship together as a church and to glorify Him in all that we do. So join us again on YouTube or on Facebook starting next week, uh, where you'll get the live version and not as much of the recorded version. I want to just go ahead and jump into our sermon this morning. Our sermon is going to come out of Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. But as we begin, I want to start with a proverb. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I want you to stop and think for a moment. How far are you willing to go for a friend? The book, I'll Push You, chronicles the journey of two best friends, Justin Skisuk and Patrick Gray. They had been best friends since they were kids. They were born two days apart in the same hospital. They went to the same schools. They were the best men in each other's weddings. But early on in his 30s, Justin developed a weakness in his limbs. And over time, as the doctors did tests, they discovered that he was diagnosed with multifocal acquired motor axonopathy, that's a, a neuromuscular disease that's very similar to ALS or Luke Gehrig's. And so quickly he became confined to a wheelchair. And he went from being able to do everything that he wanted to do to needing help from his wife just to do the regular daily tasks. And Patrick was there to help too. In fact, one night they were watching a special together on PBS about the Camino de Santiago it's a 500-mile trail through France and Spain, a pilgrimage route that, that culminates at Compostela and the Cathedral of St. James. And Justin simply remarked to his friend Patrick that he wished that he would be able to complete, complete that journey one day, but lamented that he never be, would. And Patrick simply looked over at him and said, I'll push you. Now, no one could believe they were serious. Both their wives thought they were slightly crazy. They didn't even really believe it themselves. But, but Justin, his family sold their home and then moved down the street from the Gray's house. And they trained for just over a year. And in the summer of 2014, over the course of 35 days, Patrick and Justin worked together along with about a hundred other people that they met at various parts along the route to traverse the entire 500-mile trail. How far are you willing to go for a friend? 
During college, I, I went through a two-year struggle with depression. It was more like four years, but two very strong and intense years. And honestly, there were days in which it was just difficult for me to get out of bed and make it to class. But during that time, I had a group of friends who came alongside to check up on me, to make me get up, to just simply, simply sit with me in silence or in sadness. They would make me go and work out. And one of them, metaphorically, and even partially physically, dragged me to go see a counselor, and then sat there in the lobby the entire time through the first whole first session, just in case they were needed. You see, I didn't just get by with a little help from my friends. I sur survived, and eventually I thrived because of my friends. And I'm here today healthier and emotionally stronger because of the dedication and love of the friends that God has placed in my life. How far are you willing to go for a friend? Our story today starts with five friends. And we don't know much about them. We don't know their names. We don't know their stories. We don't know how they met or how strong their friendship or how their strong friendship developed or, or what kind of bonds they had. We don't know much. But we witness this, this tight cohesion, this bond, because one of the five had become paralyzed, and he spent his days on a mat. In the Roman Empire in the first century, people with disabilities were seen as unimportant. They were less than. Most wouldn't even consider them to be a full person. Some would have seen them as cursed by God. But this was their friend. And they were there for him, and they were willing to do anything for him. And when these friends heard that Jesus was back in town, they knew what they had to do. Now, I wish that we could be there to experience and see this scene. Maybe one of them heard that the miracle worker was back and he ran to find and tell all the others. Maybe they were all together just hanging out when they heard and one of them got the idea, hey, maybe we should go see that man. Who knows? But regardless of how it happened, they ran and they got their friend. And our story begins, meanwhile, Jesus was back in Capernaum. And if you followed his journey for the past few chapters, starting in chapter 4, we find that Jesus was baptized by John in chapter 3, and then he was led by the Spirit into the desert in chapter 4, where he was then tested and tempted by Satan. But Jesus overcame, and he came out stronger, and he began his ministry. And Jesus began his ministry by going back to Nazareth, to the synagogue in which he grew up, and he begins to speak to them on the Sabbath day. Jesus stands up. He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah towards the end of that prophecy, and he begins with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled the scroll back up, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And everyone in the synagogue, their eyes were just focused and fastened on him. And then he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus then went out, and he put those words into practice. He began doing exactly what Isaiah had talked about. He took that prophetic calling as the main method of his ministry. He began driving out demons, 
healing diseases, teaching and preaching, touching lepers, spending time with sinners. He proclaims good news. He embodies that good news. He sets those imprisoned by sickness and shame and disease and demons free. Jesus is traveling all throughout Galilee and Judea, and he's living out Isaiah 61. He is the physical embodiment of that good news to a people in need. And now Jesus has returned home, as the story in Matthew and Mark tell us. You see, the same story from Luke 5 is found in Matthew chapter 9 and in Mark chapter 2. And they tell us that Capernaum has now become Jesus' home. That was the town that Simon and Andrew came from, James and John too, and possibly some of the other disciples. And now it is Jesus' hometown as well. And Jesus enters a house. Some scholars even wonder, maybe this was Jesus' own house. And when the people hear that he is there, they come from all around to see him. And Mark tells us that the people came in such huge numbers that no one could get close to him. And Jesus makes the most of that opportunity. He begins to preach. And it's standing room only. It's shoulder to shoulder with absolutely no way to push in. Some of the crowd had come here to hear Jesus preach. Others had come to be healed. Others simply come to find hope. And there's a small group of religious leaders over in the corner who have come to see and judge if Jesus is orthodox enough. Does he teach things in the right way, they wonder. The scribes and the Pharisees sit inside listening and judging. And in the midst of this chaotic scene, these five friends arrive, four carrying the fifth on a mat. And you can imagine them making their way through the crowd. Pardon us. Uh, excuse me, could we possibly get through? Hey, hurt man here. Hey, we just want to see Jesus just for a moment. Hey, make a hole. But nothing seems to work. They can't get in. But these four men are tenacious. They're undaunted. They are unwilling to give up. And so they come up with a plan B. They go up to the roof. Now, houses in first century Judea were built in a similar manner. Typically, the ground floor was the floor in which the family might cook, and they would store all of their various things, and it's the place where the animals would be brought in to spend the night. The family then would sleep on the floor above in the room or rooms that were there. And then the roof was accessible from the outside, from a small staircase against the side of the house. And it was a place where they could go and wash themselves or wash their clothes. It was a place where they could escape on the hottest nights or where they could just find a little peace and quiet for a moment. The roof of, of these Judean houses was typically thatched. It started with large beams on the bottom that, was, that made a ceiling for that top roof. But then they would crisscross sticks on top of that. And then they would lay down thatch to protect from the elements. Now, Luke tells us in his version of the story that the roof here is made of tile. And it, it could be, this could be a more upscale house. Or it could just be a way of Luke explaining to the Roman Theophilus in a way that he might understand the story. Regardless of how this house is built, the friends go up to the roof. And they begin to dig 
a whole. And I want us to stop for a moment and just imagine the scene. Pretend that you are people in Jesus' crowd. You have come to listen to a sermon. You are hanging on his every word. You are waiting with bated breath when you begin to hear a little bit of scratching and the sound of digging and some stomping and some hammering. And as time goes on, it becomes impossible to ignore as it gets louder and louder. Now, in your mind, do you think Jesus would, stop, would, would try to talk over the racket to try to preach a little bit louder to try to keep the people's attention? Or do you think Jesus stops and looks up and begins to wait with a smile? I don't know, but imagine standing in that crowd as the dirt begins to fall down on you. And as that hole gets bigger and the sunlight begins to widen as that hole gets wider, And you watch as these friends then lower down a mat using ropes with their friend laying on it. And Jesus, excuse me, and Luke tells us something astounding. Something that we often gloss over as we read it. Luke says that Jesus saw their faith. It wasn't just the man on the mat's faith. It was the faith of of the friends. Jesus saw their faith. And we need to ask, what was it that they believed? Because we don't really know. Jesus hadn't declared himself to be Messiah. He hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't risen from the dead. So what was it they believed in this moment? Well, they believed that Jesus has power. That Jesus came from God. That Jesus can heal. That Jesus can take care of their friend when nothing else has been able to. I mean, they couldn't lay out their theology or Christology or explain the hypostatic union. They wouldn't use terms like Son of God or even Messiah. But they believe that Jesus could do something. They believe. And that's enough. They are willing to go to any lengths even tearing up private property to get their friend in front of Jesus. And Jesus notices and responds. The NIV has the word friend here. Literally in Greek, it's just the word for man. But if you think about their world and the Roman worldview and how they saw people with disabilities as being less than other unimportant not even people at all. Jesus sees him as human, not as other. To Jesus, this man on the mat is a human being. He is a person in need. Jesus gives him back his humanity with one word. Man, friend, human being. Your sins are forgiven. How would you feel in that moment if you were that man on the mat? You came for one thing, healing. You received something else, forgiveness. And some of us, honestly, might feel a little bit disappointed. That's nice, teacher, but what about my legs? 
Others of us, we might feel relief. Everyone focuses on my legs, on my disability, on the fact that I can't walk. But this man saw past that. And he saw to my greatest need. He knows what I keep hidden, what I keep secret. He knows what I most need. We don't know what caused this man to be paralyzed. We don't know his story. Was it an illness or an accident? Was it the result of some sin? We simply just don't know. But Jesus directly addresses the man right in front of him. A man that many of us would have walked by or ignored or turned our face away or pretended to not see. Yes, this man has friends who who know him and love him and care for him. But Jesus in this moment looks at him and knows him deeply, fully, and knows exactly what he needs. He is a person in need of forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven, Jesus declares. And at that statement, the crowd goes silent. Some don't know what to say or do. Some are confused by what just happened. Others others are outraged. You see, that the scribes and the Pharisees got what they had come here for, proof that Jesus wasn't teaching correctly in their minds. The religious elite in the corner are stewing in their righteous indignation. No one can forgive sins but God alone. In fact, these, these religious leaders could have pointed to book, chapter, and verse. They would have shown how God described himself in Exodus 34. And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Forgiveness of sins, they would declare, is God alone. That is his job. They could have gone to the psalmist's description in Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all of your diseases. There they would have said, the psalmist tells us it's God who forgives. It's God who heals, not some random teacher. Or they might have pointed to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 43. I, even I, God declares, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins No more. It's nobody's job but God's, they would say. Or Micah 7, which declares, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight in showing mercy. The Pharisees and the scribes would have said, Only God forgives sins. The Bible clearly tells us so. We have all these passages known and memorized. So who is this man to say that he can do it too? It's blasphemy, I tell you. But that's exactly the point that Jesus wants them to see. Jesus is exactly the one who can respond to sin. Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he responds before they can even voice their concerns. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Obviously, saying your sins are forgiven, I can't prove that to you. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he turns, he looks, 
at the man with the disability. And he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus puts it all on the line so that you know, so that you might believe. I want you to witness a miracle. And Luke tells us the man immediately gets up. Now, I've always imagined this scene kind of like watching a baby giraffe as it tries to stand, rising on, on weakened knee, legs that haven't been used in a while, these shaky knees after no exercise or movement. But Luke makes it sound like he just jumps up with a spring in his step and begins to rejoice. And I love picturing this scene. The friends up above looking down through the hole they created, crying and jumping for joy. The man showing off to the crowd and pointing to his feet and showing that his legs work and maybe even dancing a little jig. And through all of it, they are praising God together. Because that's the scene that we are left with as Luke closes out this story. Both the man who is healed and the crowd watching rejoice in what God has done. Now, I want us to stop and think for just a moment. Where do you find yourself in this story? So often we will listen to a sermon or read a Bible verse, and, and we just kind of look at it from the outside looking in. But I want you to place yourself in this moment, in this time. Where might you find yourself? Are you part of the crowd who've come to Jesus and see amazing things? Are you one of the individuals who brought their friend to Jesus? Are you one of the religious elite looking on to see if things are correct and listening and judging for what's proper and right? Are you the individual on the mat in need of the time and attention of Jesus? Where do you find yourself in this story? Because if we don't look for where it might connect to our hearts and our lives in this moment, then it's just a nice narrative that we tend to pass by. Now, depending on your vantage point, might change what you see and what you take away today. But there's something that stands out to me as I read through this story. That everyone was there for a different reason. Some to hear him teach some to detract, others to experience healing, others to experience the moment. But regardless of why they are there, Jesus upends their expectations and teaches them something. And today, maybe you've come for all sorts of different reasons. Maybe you've just come to hear some teaching. Maybe you've come to be encouraged. Maybe you've come looking to see if this is a church that you might want to eventually attend one day. Maybe you've come looking to see if we teach things correctly. Maybe you've come because your life is in need of some sort of hope and healing. Maybe you've come simply to experience this moment. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Regardless of why we've come, as long as we are there and present and listening, then, then Jesus can upend our expectations and teach us something. And in this story, what stands out to me is this. Regardless of why they are there, sin is the ultimate problem they are facing that day. 
Now, sin is anything that we put ahead of God. Anything that we might put in God's place. It doesn't have to necessarily be a terrible thing, but it's something we emphasize more than we emphasize God. It could be an idea. It could be a person. It could be a philosophy. It could be money or an addiction or anger or self-reliance or a sense of just simply not needing God. Sin is missing the mark. And it's putting something in God's place. And sin lies at the heart of all of our problems, of all of our selfishness, of all of our brokenness, of all of the despair. And here's the thing about sin. There's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. We can't undo it. We can't make up for it. We can't do enough good to outweigh the bad that we've done in our life. The religious leaders are actually right in their statement. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Sin is the problem. But this story tells us that Jesus is the solution. Because Jesus is God who came to take on the sins of the world. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Romans he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were powerless, while we were full of shame, while there was nothing that we could do about it, Christ died for us. Peter puts it this way, He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds we have been healed. Sin is our problem, but Jesus is the solution. And it's available to anyone who wants it. Anyone who asks Anyone who simply says, God, I recognize my sinfulness and my need for you. And I want you to come in and make me clean and make me whole. You see, Jesus takes our sins when we ask upon himself. And why? Why would he do it? Well, it's because God delights in showing mercy, in offering forgiveness and cleansing sin. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiving. He brings salvation because that is who He is. Jesus says that He is the friend that we need. Proverbs 18 tells us this, One who has reliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the closest friend that we can have is the one who sees us in our deepest need, in our sinful state, in our shame, in our brokenness, in our despair, and who still sees us as a person, and who loves us, and who offers us what we need most, forgiveness. That forgiveness is available to you today. There's a way that we can help you to experience that forgiveness. We pray that you will reach out. You can send an email to me at D, that's as in Delta, D McGraw, M-C-G-R-A-W, at BentonvilleChurch.com. Or you can call our church office and somebody would be happy to put you in touch with one of our ministers. We would love just to help you know more about who Jesus is and why that matters. 
Or maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. Feel free to reach out that same way. Or maybe you say, I've been waiting for so long and today I realize I have a need to give my life to Christ. And that is amazing and beautiful and we want to help you do that. So please reach out the same way and we want to help you experience the forgiveness of God. May God bless you today. May we recognize that He is the one who saves. He's the one who gives forgiveness. He is the one who calls us His friend. May God bless you.